that for me that was the highest form of hospitality i'd ever heard of you know mm-hmm. don't forget about making drinks or being good to your customers if you are risking your life Saving and taking life. a bullet to protect complete strangers just because they're staying at your hotel what higher form of hospitality mm-hmm. is there there's none it's like i want to go and learn from these people i need to go and meet these people welcome to the lush life podcast I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures. How to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. If you're new to the hospitality industry, or even an old-timer, you should listen to the next two episodes of Lush Life. The story that unfolds over these two episodes could be your story. Our guest, Tim Etherington Judge, has literally been through it all and come out the other side, with all the tools necessary to help his fellow colleagues in the hospitality industry. Thank goodness he had the bravery to tell his story, and then to establish Healthy Hospo, which provides information, advice, and support on mental and physical health for all hospitality professionals. It's best to let Tim tell you his tale, starting at the very beginning. Uh, I was born in Reading, Berkshire, which is not very far from here. But um, when I was very young, my father had a heart attack at 29. I think a stress-related heart problem was told that uh, if we didn't kind of change his high-stress job... um, he would he wouldn't be around much longer for his family, so we up sticks and moved down to Cornwall. I think I was like five or six at the time. Um, so yeah, I really grew up in Cornwall. I don't remember any time before Cornwall. Um, so we moved down to a little town in Hale, a little town in Hale, a little town in Cornwall called Hale, mm-hmm. um, which is right by the beach. It's the most beautiful beach. It's like three miles long and so you were country acres boy. of sand dunes. Yeah, it was the greatest place to grow up as a kid. It was so safe. You know, we didn't even lock the front door. You, during the summer holidays, you'd be like, "Mom, I'm going out now." And you'd go out like nine o'clock in the morning. Come, she'd be like, "Be back before, be back for tea." So you come back, have some dinner, and you're like, "I'm going off again." It's and you'd so go lucky. again before dark, and it was the just the best place to grow up as a kid. Um, but then, as you get a bit older, it's you know it becomes a bit more difficult. It's very tourist driven. So in the summer, it's absolutely packed. Um, and there's lots of jobs in kitchens, in bars, in restaurants. Um, but in the winter, it's just dead. And it's got even worse now because of the kind of second home thing. So there's whole villages in Cornwall that in the winter, no one lives in. Because it's all just known, it's all like summer homes for people in London. So does um, that mean your class at school was tiny? No, I was lucky to go to a really good school. Um, so I got a scholarship to the best school in the county, Truro School, um, which was a real blessing. It was, was it a boarding school? Yes, yeah, um, 
it was just a great school to go there a very sports focused school so i got into the rugby team which was kind of kind of like being i guess being in the college football team in the us you were just treated differently and it was special you get pulled out of class go to training and um yeah it was great i went to school in the same class as um a four-time olympic gold medalist um, and probably the greatest competition sailor of all time um, ben ainsley Sir Ben Ainsley, as we have to call him now. Um, so yeah, it's a great place to grow up as a kid. And then, because it's such a tourist area, you and you know, when you get to working age, it's um, you start getting jobs in bars and restaurants. And my dad was kind of was always in the catering industry, so he had a little coffee shop um, at Pendennis Castle. So that was my first kind of job. Fourteen years old, it's like child labour. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> One pound fifty an hour. Um, but it, you know, so I started in hospitality. So that was uh, your first taste. Yeah, and then went from there to flipping burgers at Wimpy, um, which is like oh a my gosh. yeah, probably that can, horrible can burger easy, chain. Yeah. Um, no wonder you're vegan now. Yeah, exactly. Not that there's anything against people who eat hamburgers. No, but Wimpy but. are not the best hamburgers. <laughs> no. um, and then you know had um, bar backing jobs and. You know, so it was something that you were interested in or you just thought, okay, this is a way to make money? It's just in Cornwall. It's just literally the only jobs you can get in the summer oh. and they're so easy to come by. Um, so started with that and then tried all sorts of things. So, you know, worked behind the bar, um, putting pints, it's all pints and, and gin tonics and stuff like that in the summer. Um, worked in the kitchen for a bit as a chef, like a summertime chef for about three years in a restaurant called The Watermill. Um, and, you know, it, it was fun it was a summer job but then in the winter kind of things those jobs dry up because everyone just leaves um so tried a few other things uh one of my favorite jobs was i did two years working at a special needs school so classroom assistant so working with severely um, disabled children with um, severe autism down syndrome and various other um, illnesses and that was just the most fantastic job and one of those days where you, you turn up to work every day and it's like the smallest thing, like something that we just take so f- for granted. You you teach these kids or do it for these kids and it just makes their world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just the most magical job, but so emotionally draining. Like every day I would come home. About how old it, were you when you were doing this? I was like 19. Mm-hmm. Um, so still young, you're really young yourself. Yeah, I, but just, I mean, some of the kids were as, almost as old as me. But it was just, it was magic, mm-hmm. magic. Um, but I'd come home from work every day and just fall, sit on the sofa and just instantly fall asleep. Um, I still remember my last day at work after two years working with these kids. I, the last day I just cried the entire day. It was so magic. They must have missed you too. Yeah, I missed them. Like mm-hmm. magic. Unfortunately, I don't think any of those children will still be alive, mm-hmm. which is the sad, the sad part. But you know, it's not about um, teaching them anything meaningful. They're never going to change the world. But it's about kind of trying to make their lives yeah, as enjoyable yeah. for the short time that they're with us. And I guess that's kind of, that has a little bit of hospitality in it as well. You know, it's just about making people's so. lives better, making people a bit happier. So, so I did that. Um, I went to university, which was not what, so what great. You, what did you study? I studied interior design. Oh boy. Mm, I was very good at art at school. Um, but I didn't think that fine art had much of a, much career prospects or well, that's is what my career advisor told me 
Um, so, but I was really interested in architecture and design, so I thought interior design would be fun, and it just wasn't. Oh. So it was it was quite boring. Did you last the whole time? No, my parents were going through quite a uh, going through a divorce at the time, so it was quite a stress, very stressful period for me. So I'd be kind of at university, and then I'd have to come home. And I was at university in Hull, which is about nine hour drive from Cornwall. So I'd have to kind of like drive home for the weekends, and then drive back, and it was just a, it wasn't a great time for me. Um, so I and the course was was not great. So I just decided that you know this isn't this isn't worth me getting to huge amounts of debt for. It's just not working out. Um, so I moved back to Cornwall. Did you think of of a different um, degree that you could do instead no, of interior design? No, I just said that I right now university is not for me, and, and I need to go and kind of help my parents going get through what they're going through. Um, so I moved back to Cornwall um, again. Tried to get away from from hospitality so got a job working for alan and heath who are dj mix well they make kind of like live sound equipment so they also make the best dj mixers in the world but they're based down in cornwall so but for them so that was a fun time kind of hanging out in nightclubs and selling dj mixes and so you're kind of near the hospitality yeah list. yeah i used to go to fabric a lot because they were our number one oh yeah they were kind of they we gave their mixes in return for us being able to say that we could Kind of as used at Fabric because at the time Fabric was the number one club in the world. Um, See, so every you know, at least once a month, I would get go up to Fabric for a night. Were you a music lover? Would you stay up all night? Oh, and definitely. I would go to the to, entire yeah. club. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'd rock up, meet the sound engineers on the door, and just stay and just stay and stand like in the DJ booth with some of my favorite DJs like James Lavelle, uh, Peter Cruder, and some of the other guys. You know, incredible DJs they had there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, was some special moments in that job. And then um, got a job running a place called the Ginning Bay's Beach Cafe. So in Falmouth, uh, it's a little port town in Cornwall. There's a there's like a little tiny beach, and on right on the beach there's like a, a building which is a cafe um, with two flats above. So I got uh, my friend Mark was running it at the time, and he's like, "I'm done with this. I'm going to go." And he went to go and uh, join an uh, oil tanker. He joined BP oh, to come boy. and come like an oil tanker <laughs> captain. <laughs> Um, so I started working there, and he, they were like, after a month, they were like, "Do you want to be the new manager?" So I was like, Hospitality yeah, sure. got you again. Yeah, I was, I was back in. Um, yeah, so I was back in, um, moved in above the cafe, so it was just magic, you know, living above the cafe. You could have jumped out of my bedroom window, and you would have landed on sand. Um, and did that for a year, and like through the summer, and it was. Just... Was there ever a time when you thought, "I'm just going to stay in Cornwall"? Yeah, life. that time I was, you know, I, was, I had no plans to leave. Um, and then Christmas 2005, um, my mum was rushed into hospital um, and never came out. Oh. Um, so three weeks in intensive care and, and then passed away very suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, and that was really the moment that changed everything for me. Um, I was really close to my mum. Um, and I never probably would have left Cornwall because, you know, my parents were super important to me. Um, but having that happen, you know, it's huge. You know, I was like 27 at yeah, the time. Yeah, so young. Uh-huh. Um, it changed everything. So I always say that her final gift to me was the the kind of uh, the ability to go and travel, the freedom to go and travel. So 
within one month I'd quit my job um, bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand um, had that been a place that you'd always wanted to go or you thought that's yeah. the furthest I can get away no I'd always wanted to go to New Zealand so kind of late nights chatting with my friends we would you know, we would campaign uh, on environmental issues you know, so I spent time like chain chaining myself to um esso petrol pumps um, and you know do lots of campaigning to try and raise environmental awareness and that's why I became um, why I stopped eating meat at, at the age of twenty twenty one um, and so New Zealand always seemed like the perfect place if you look at any you know if you were to assess countries around the world. Um, on their ability to survive climate change, New Zealand would probably be number one. You know, it's two small islands, miles from anywhere, in the middle of an ocean, more fresh water than you know what to do with a very small population. Super fertile land. If things go bad, Mm. go to New Zealand. Exactly. (laughs) That was my grandmother. Your grandmother was a wise lady. That's true. Yes, I moved to New Zealand and it was just, it's the most magical country. I love it. Um, were you always thinking okay I know I can work as a bartender in this world yeah yeah so it was one of my goals to Uh kind of go there and become a cocktail bartender because at the time I was running this beach resort in Falmouth and um, one of the things we decided to do was it was the summer and we thought hey let's you know cocktails let's do some cocktails on and you put them on the menu for the summer so I had Funnily enough, it was the Diageo brand ambassador who looked after kind of London, but also because he was from Cornwall, so he looked after Cornwall as well. So he would come down occasionally. So, so he popped in one day <coughs> and and worked with me to to make a cocktail menu. You know, it was the the days of you know, it was a, it was a cosmopolitan on there and a chocolate martini, and you know, it was those kind of days. Um, but I loved it, and all the other staff were scared to make the drinks, so I ended up making most of the cocktails and just fell in love with making drinks for people. Did you find that the clientele was up for all those drinks? Yeah, we. Common? I mean, we didn't sell very many, uh-huh. um, but it, you know, it was more during the summer when the people from outside of town came down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was fun, you know, and people really liked them, and and I really enjoyed making them. So when I moved to New Zealand, it, you know, it was kind of one of the, the ideas I had was to go and work in a proper cocktail bar. So I spent three months just traveling, traveling around. Um, my friend Dave had recently moved there, so I went to stay with him in a place called the Coromandel, which is just—it's magic. It's just the most beautiful spot. Um, had, had you done any research on these cocktail bars in New no, Zealand, not or really. you just were going to go and? Yeah, it was just a spur wanted. of the moment, um, needing to get away, and, and this was the idea. So, did that move to? Decided to move to Auckland. Um, after three months, and then um, got a job at Sky City, which is the biggest casino in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And it's where the Sky Tower is, so that, which is the tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, got a job in there in their cocktail bar um, as their assistant manager, but it was a flare bar, so it was um, it was, it was oh, a lot of fun. You used all your athletic fun. prowess. To yeah, swing those bottles around. I was I was a lot less athletic back in the in those days. <laughs> Your rugby days. If I showed you photos from my New Zealand days, I was considerably larger than I am now. Had you ever done flair before? No, never. Um, so it was How exciting. High, like, what's the learning curve for that? Oh, it's hard. You just practice like four or five hours a day, and yeah. then go to work. So yeah, you know, we would meet up as a team in the park and throw bottles around and, and 
try. And, you know, I, don't, I was never very good, but I kind of enjoyed it. And um, what I enjoyed a lot more, though, was working in a super busy bar. Um, so, like, Thursdays were pretty busy, and then Friday and Saturday nights, you was just, you'd be three deep at the bar for five hours, mm-hmm. and there was no stopping. And it was, it was just how fast could you get drinks out? And it was a great team. Such a change, change from Falmouth, I am sure. Oh, definitely. I mean, the cafe got really, really busy, but it was a different kind of busy that you would just have a queue out the door the whole day. And it was more the systems that were holding them, like, you know, hand-making coffee and all that mm. kind of stuff. Um, but, yes, yeah, so working in, like, a super busy bar where it wasn't so much about the quality. I mean, people just wanted drinks. You know, there was a DJ playing, and you just had to get drinks out as quickly as possible. Um, and that taught me a lot as well about how to work fast, about efficiency of movement, about setting stations. Um, did that for a year, and then this guy called Jacob Briars walked into the bar one day. I had no idea who he was. This is like this strange Kiwi man with a huge smile and a big laugh, um, and started to talk to me about a cocktail competition. And I was like, I didn't even know there were such things as cocktail competitions. And he's like, Yeah, we do this. This competition called the 42 Below Cocktail World Cup. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he said, if anyone from the bar wants to enter, hey, why don't you, you know, you could enter as well. Um, Were you ever making your own drinks then? Or I'd made one. Recipes, I mean? Yeah, I'd made one. There was um, a festival called the AK07, a big Auckland-wide arts and, craft, arts and music festival. So I did their signature drink. Um, I just moved back to Cornwall and I was at... Uh, unpacking some old stuff from the house and found the, the a poster from that drink um but no not really we did, had it it came naturally though i'll just throw these things together and this is my drink yeah i was yeah. just i don't really know what i'm doing but this seems okay Tastes um, good. yeah it was, it was very simple uh-huh. um, so then the man walked into the bar yes and jacob walked in and uh gave me this flyer for the cocktail world cup and it caught my interest so i decided to enter and then spent like, i don't know three weeks kind of coming up with a drink um, which was a clarified Bloody Mary, essentially, um, in a martini form. And went to the first competition. So, okay, oh, so you submit your recipe first, and then they pick the, the t- their 10 favorite recipes, and then you go to a kind of an event. Um, so made the top 10, and was like, oh, my God. And then turned up at the event, and there's all, like, the top bartenders from Auckland. So these guys are like, oh, my God. Oh my God, there's Jamie Lawton. He's, like, really good, and then, and it was just uh, it was quite intimidating, and I was so nervous, like so nervous, because they held it in um, in like a private apartment or a suite at the Hilton Hotel in, in Auckland Harbour, and there were guests there, and they set up a little bar. Forty Two Blow like knew how to throw a, throw a party, and I think I've ever come across a brand that knew how to throw throw a party as well as Forty Two Blow. And I was just so nervous. I, they had a bar, so I just like I'll, I'll just have a drink to set my nerves. And oh boy! <laughs> three or four more, um, and went on stage, and managed to uh, to make the New Zealand team. Oh my gosh, fantastic! So it was me and a guy called Simon McGoram who were picked as the top two. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and we got to represent New Zealand at the the global finals, which were held in Queenstown, um, New Zealand. And it was just, it was the maddest, maddest competition. Anyone, you speak to anyone that's kind of attended a Cocktail World Cup, particularly like 2008 and before, 
everyone talks about it. So, so where so were the fun. other entries from? All over the world. All over the world. But it was a team competition. So uh-huh. you have... And there were only two of you on... No, three. And three of you on So it was two of us from Auckland uh-huh. and a guy from Christchurch. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so you had... A, Team from America, team from the UK, team from China, team from Australia. Plus, you have the pressure from France. hometown team. Yeah, well, actually, two. There were two teams from New Zealand. Uh-huh. So you had two of us from Auckland and one guy from Christchurch, and then you had um, one guy from Auckland. No, sorry, one guy from Christchurch and two guys from Wellington. Um, and it's a week-long competition, and it's team-based. So the idea is that you turn up in Queenstown with no drink. And you have to craft, over the course of that week together, you craft a drink that you then do at the finals. But at the same time, like, you literally get off the plane and they take you straight to a bungee jump. Oh, how about if you don't like want a bungee jump? It's like you have to. You kind of have to. Um, so you stand there, and it, but it's part of the competition. So you're standing there. I would there. have lost already. Yeah, as they, so you're standing there and you've got... Um, you have to make a cosmopolitan. So you kind of like mix it up before into a shaker. Hopefully you get to drink it before you jump oh, off. Oh, no, no, oh, you no. don't get to drink it. Um, so they tape like a martini glass to one hand and then uh-huh. you tape the cocktail shaker to the other hand. And then just before okay. you, you go, someone fills it with ice and puts the top on it for you. And then you jump. And then as you're kind of like getting to the end of the jump and it's starting to slow down, you shake your drink and then you hang it and you have to try and pour it into the glass and then the boat um, is is the judge uh-huh. who's kind of waiting there then a guy with a big big uh, stick just hooks you and pulls you in and then you have to hand in the martini or the, the cosmopolitan and some guys took it so far that they had like a little bit of orange peel and a lighter oh, tucked into their socks as, they, as he, they hand it they go like wait 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 and they pull it out and whilst hanging upside down after doing a bungee jump um, and that's the, right the start of the week and you just like Oh, I guess so you can get through center. that. You can get through anything. Yeah, and they flew us to the top of the Remarkables, which are the mountains in uh, Lord of the Rings, and they do like a mystery box challenge up there, and you're just like, it's just the greatest competition ever. But you know, some of the people I met there, I just become lifelong friends. Oh, I was like, did they fall by the wayside? Like, no, no, no yeah, everyone pretty much lasted. Yeah, everyone lasts, and there's some amazing stories, um, and you just made friends for it life. Definitely like, a bonding experience. Oh, definitely, that, you know. Right? And some of the people in my year, you know, like Richard Hunt, um, who's now the owner of uh, Mint Gun Club, um, David Cordoba, who went on to become the global ambassador for Bacardi, um, and just so many other like just great people. And there, Leanne Davidson. Um, who else is? Oh, there's just too many to count. Um, you know angus winchester was the judge and it was just yeah that was my kind of entry into um into cocktail competitions and realized me it made me realize that oh maybe this is something i can do um entered a lot more won quite a few went to jamaica with afton estate um, which was an amazing trip and 2000 and then got a job at a little buckle well did you think then this is more than just being a bartender yeah this is this could be something this could be a real career yeah like more of a career than just going from bar to bar to bar mm. definitely and i managed i was lucky enough so when i was working at sky city um there was a little bar at the bottom of the hill called sweet and it was open till 5 a.m and it was like the cocktail bar that all the bartenders went to it was it was the hangout um so I would go and drink there all the time and I would just get bugging the owner like, hey, can I, I want to really want to come work here. I want to come and work and make you know, really good drinks and, and work in this bar. 
And eventually he said, oh, go on then, all right. So I started working there. Um, after about a month, became the manager. Um, and that, I think, was Was it the, easy to leave? Yeah, it was yeah, super easy, because this is the place I wanted off. to go. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it was to take the next step. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, took over there, managed to build still the best bar team I've ever worked with. And there were kind of three of us, three of us behind the bar, or four of us behind the bar. So it was me, a guy called Chris Harrop, um, who's probably the best bartender I ever worked with. Um, a girl called Chanel and, and Tor Berquist, who now owns PS40 in Melbourne. Um, and it was just magic. You know, one of those teams where you don't really talk to each other, but everyone knows exactly what's going on. You're helping each other out make rounds. Um, and it was just, it was none of this like backs or behind. You just, because you didn't need to say it. Everyone knew where everyone else was, and it was just the best team ever. Um, but that was also the first bar that I had a breakdown in. Um, looking back at it now, I really, you know, I can look back and go, oh, no, that's exactly what happened then. Um, so I guess that was the kind of my first experience of. of How did that manifest itself? Uh, bottle of tequila. Uh, one night when I was in the bar on my own and then having a massive stand-up row, smashing a few things and just, cool. yeah, Physical just a, well. a really, really, really bad time. Um, yeah, so I guess that was my, because the bar was open until five and then you have to clean down. And when I took over as manager, it had the reputation as being the kind of lock-in bar. So bartenders would finish their shift, come down to suite mm-hmm. and then be a lock-in. So when I first started, you know, you very rarely would you get home before the sun would come up and quite often you know you wouldn't get home till like 11 o'clock in the morning from work and you'd start again at three or four it's just you know, doing hun- almost 100 hour weeks every week and no sleep and excessive drinking um so i guess Do you that think was it was the drinking that kicked it off or did someone say something I, it was just a combination like the, the lack of sleep is what and from what i know now mm. um that would have been the biggest the biggest contributor to it but then you combine lack of sleep with terrible nutrition like i was at least probably about 25 kgs heavier than i am now yeah i could show you some photos i was a i was a chopster <laughs> um but the next day after it did you think oh my god what happened then yeah or yeah you know yeah, i remember starting the tequila i don't remember the end of the night i remember getting home i don't remember big chunks of what happened that evening but i never went back to the bar um and that was kind of my first experience of of how of the dark side of the industry mm-hmm. um so yeah and then kind of after that was just a little bit lost and um, went to work in a couple of other bars but it was never quite the same you know, you, when you go from working at the, you know, it was the number one bar in the city and everyone to kind of being. Did empty. you leave it because of that? Yeah, that yeah, breakdown? yeah. I never went back to work. Oh, sorry. Um, I, you know, if it wasn't right for me and then the owner was also like, look, you can't come back after this. Oh. Um, he was very unsupportive. Um, he was basically just like, you did this, so go away. Don't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and things could have been so different. Had he said, okay, I think there's a problem. Yeah. We need to deal with yeah, this. exactly. Um, but he was also the same owner who closed the bar without telling anyone. So when people came, a few years later, um, guys came down to, to do their shift mm-hmm. and they just found a big chain across the door and padlock. And he hadn't even right. told him he was going to close. Um, but it was an iconic bar. And you talk to anyone who lived mm-hmm. in Auckland at that time and Sweet is still spoken about so fondly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and lots of people who work there have gone on to great things so like Tor owns PS40 um, Barney Toy who um, you did really well at Bacardi Legacy is now based in London um, James Goggin mm-hmm. um, who's killing it for Maverick yeah. Drinks um, Chanel Lakiri, who is um, over in New York now as a brand ambassador um, so yeah it's a really really good team that worked there um, but yeah just kind of a bit did lost did think it was stuff, time to leave? I didn't. I um, really didn't want to live Auckland. I love New Zealand so much, uh-huh. um, but I didn't really know where to go or what to do. So I got a job in a couple other bars, yeah. and it just wasn't, just wasn't right. Um, and my girlfriend at the time was doing a lot of work with a with a bar school in India. So she would go to India and and kind of recruit people to. Oh no, sorry, she was working for a bar school in in New Zealand, and she would recruit people from India to come over and train and stuff like that. So, um, so we would talk about India a lot, and then it just popped up in my in my um, inbox one day or my Facebook. Um, no, it wasn't Facebook. So it was before then. Pre Facebook. Um, about this job in India, you know, and someone said, "Hey, would you like to go?" You know, we're looking for a, an expat to go and work in India. So I was like, "Sure," because I, me and my girlfriend at the time, we would talk about India a lot. Um, so I was like, "Oh, I'm really interested." You know, I've heard so much about India. Um, so we began conversations, and then, like most people, I'd watched the, you know, the three-day kind of TV coverage of the terrorist attacks in Mumbai. Wow. You know, when they held the the hotels hostage, and particularly the the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel, and yeah. you know, set it on fire. I've been there. Yeah. stayed there. Yeah. It's a magic, well, magic place. Yeah, it is. You know, and the, the general manager's children and wife passed away in the fire, and you hear the stories about about the staff and the courage of the staff to save their guests. Um, so when I found out that the um, the job was at the hotel. Um, to help them reopen their bars after the attacks, I was like, I have to go. I have to go. I, for me, you know, hearing the stories of the staff risking their lives to save the guests who were staying in their hotel, that for that for me, that was the highest form of hospitality I'd ever heard of. You know, mm-hmm. don't forget about making drinks or, you know, being being good to your customers. Like, if you are risking your life and taking them. a bullet to protect complete strangers just because they're staying at your hotel what higher form of hospitality mm-hmm. is there there's none it's like i want to go and learn from these people i need to go and meet these people and so when i found out that it was that at that hotel i was like i'm definitely going um, so flew out to mumbai on christmas eve in 2009 um, to take up that job and it was yeah it was amazing to go and work in that such an iconic hotel you know it's probably the second most famous building in India mm-hmm. after the Taj Mahal. Um, and yeah, it was a real honor to go and meet with these super humble... What a compliment s- to you and, you know, that they reached out to you, something in the... Yeah, I, I, I just felt very lucky yeah. to have that opportunity. Um, and it was just magic, you know, to go and, and meet the, all these, these super humble, really nice, super low-paid people. Um, who have such pride in oh yeah and i you know yeah oh it's 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 such a uh it's more than just a a hotel for people of mumbai it's an institution it's everyone has a relationship Mm. with that hotel they've either been there or um they've had a party there or something's happened there you know i remember working at the bar one day and these four guys came in 
And you could tell that they weren't usual customers. You know, it's an expensive five-star hotel, and it's not cheap by anyone's standards. Mm-hmm. And you see all these four guys come in, and they're kind of standing there quite awkwardly at the end of the bar. And so it's obvious that they don't kind of visit five-star hotels very often. And they ordered one Coke and four glasses, which they shared between them. Mm. And then uh, they're English, they're, none of them spoke English. So, um, so I kind of spoke, asked afterwards when they left, like... Um, Asked one of the staff, you know, what was that all about? Who are these guys? And they're like, oh, they've come all the way from the other side of India um, with the sole purpose to visit the, the hotel. It was so important. They did almost like a pilgrimage mm-hmm. to the hotel to come visit. But all they can afford is one can of Coke. So they shared it. But that was, for them, that was something that right. they traveled across the country to do. Um, and then it really kind of made me realize just how important the building is. Um, and even more so after the terrorist attacks, because that really tore at the heart of Indian culture. Right. Um, but I got to learn the the magic of Indian hospitality. It's it's something you can't teach. It comes from the heart. You know? Can it's you verbalize a, a little what yeah, it, the difference is? They're generally very poorly trained, because it's you know, one of the worst paid industries in the world. So very poorly educated people usually um, don't get a lot of training. But they just want to please people. You know, they have it in their hearts to give people a great experience. There's nothing that, nothing too far, nothing they won't do to make sure people have a good time. And it's very genuine. It's very honest. And I think that's, a lot of people don't have that. You know, a lot of people can have great skills. But if you don't genu- genuinely in your heart want to serve people, um, then it doesn't work. So, mm. But in India, you definitely have that. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was an amazing experience to learn from them. So, yeah, that was my first uh, my first step into India. Um, and then from there, I was, I was working at the hotel and we would have Diageo people come in all the time because it was the number one account. Um, and I, I did some trainings for Diageo people because they, you know, they were relying on me to kind of impress any guests they bought from overseas. So they would kind of pay me to come and do some trainings with them or to do classes with them. Um, and then eventually one day someone came in and said, would you like to be the uh, ambassador? We're looking for an ambassador for India for the reserve portfolio. Um, we'd really like you to, to be that person. So I was like, sure. You know, every... Did that mean giving up your role at the Taj? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And at the time I was kind of happy with. Because as much as I love the, the people at the Taj, the, the bureaucracy was frightening. Um, it's a big hotel chain, and that's the flagship hotel. And they had a very famous chef there at the time, um, so everything had to go through the chef. Like, if you wanted to move the flower vase from one side of the bar to the other, you had to have chef's approval, and just meant things that were very, very slow, very like painful. like menus and things like that? No, he had to approve that as well. Oh, boy. So everything. Um did he work with you or no. was no. no? No, not at all. <laughs> Quick answer to that. Yeah. So off to Diageo Reserve. Yeah, so they invited me and, you know, every and bar. Was this, was this for all of India? For all of India. So I became the first, um, the first glo- the first ambassador for India, um, which was, it was an insane, insane journey. So, yeah, there were five of us on the reserve team. Um, and I got to travel all over the country. Um, Training, training bartenders, 
staying in the hotel. So we had, you know, we had, we did some deals with the Taj Hotel. So I would go and train at many Taj Hotels as possible, but I would get to stay in them all as well. Mm-hmm. And India has the most breathtaking hotels in the world. You know, things like Rambagh Palace, um, Umaid Bawan. Um, I've North- stayed in some of the Oboray. Oh, the Obro yeah, ones. Yeah. Like, I've stayed at Amra Villas, yeah. Raj Banya Villas. Yeah, Amra Villas. One of the best hotels oh, I've ever been to. Just, it's incredible, oh. the hotels in India. Because they're, they're we're luxurious. So luxurious. And particularly the Taj ones, because they're all ex-royal palaces, a lot of them. They have that other world level of, of historical opulence. Um, and so how was the bar staff in them though oh terrible mm-hmm. well, you, well, so you really had to earn your, earn your pay yeah they're so passionate though uh-huh. you know really keen you'd turn up and they would all sit there and pay attention and ask questions and, and mega keen I remember doing a, a training in Bangalore at the, the Taj West End and we had you know, kind of we were setting up for the training and these two young bartenders turned up like an hour early and I was like wow you guys are so keen and started chatting to them about stuff so I said to them, oh, you know, whereabouts, whereabouts are you from? Where do you work? They're like, oh, we're from Cochin. And I was like, okay, man, Cochin. I don't know where Cochin is. So I asked someone, I was like, where, where's Cochin? And they're like, that's not very close. It's a long, long way away. Mm-hmm. So I said, how long did it take you to get yeah. to get to the training today? They're like, oh, 12 hours, sir. Uh-huh. Like, what? <laughs> like, 12 hours on the train. I'm like, you spent 12 hours on a train to come to my training and then like, yes sir like so matter-of-factly right, as if right. that was completely normal and then at the end of the session they both came up to me and said thank you very much sir. this has been the best day of best day of our lives and then you're just like and it was just so many like uh-huh. experiences like that humbling experiences um across india which um, just made me fall in love with with india were you teaching pretty much basic stuff or? yeah it was super basic because now everything mm-hmm. is about local and you know sourced from mm-hmm. was there any of that because india has so much yeah it was starting so to so um much, it was starting yeah. to so when we launched world class um in india so my my, my the first six months of my job in india um but we're, we're launching world class before i'd even kind of i had to come back and get a new come back to uk and get a visa and so whilst i was in the uk they said the Diageo team said, oh, can you just meet with these um, these few people in London while you're here? Um, they've got they've got something to tell you. I was like, yeah, sure, okay, fine. So I met with like Louise McGuan, who now owns JJ Corey Whiskey, and Spike Marchant, who's the, the world-class ambassador, and a few other people. And they said, oh, so um, world-class this year, you know, it's our third year for world-class. We did London launch, and then Greece, and, uh, and next year it's going to be in India. So I was like... Yeah, and you're going to be the host ambassador. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, to do. Like, and it's in six so months' time. Training everyone so, in around the world. Yeah, not only did I have to go in write a complete world class plan for India to find an Indian winner, then also had to be the ambassador. Do you think India was ready for that then? If you see what happened afterwards, definitely. Right. Um, but then launch and and do all and you mm-hmm. kind of be that the guy on the ground for for hosting the, party, the global right? finals. Yeah. So we launched world class, and a lot of it was just super bad. We did it in four cities: in Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore, and Kolkata. Um, we had this one, this one um, guy. He was super young, super fresh, but he worked at the Blue Bar um, in Delhi, and he turned up to the first round, and he was awful. Like, didn't make the top ten, just just uniformly rubbish. Turned up to the second round, 
and and made the top ten. So we did we do like a little competition, then top ten, then the top ten would do a, like a proper competition, mm-hmm. and the top, the best one from that round would go through to the final. Mm-hmm. But you see, you could see when he turned up, he's like, I really want to do well at this. Um, so he turned up to the second one and was made did a bit better, um, but it was still not great. And then turned up to the last round in Delhi and just blew everyone out of the water. And as you said, you used like local ingredients and it was just so much better than everyone else. Just instantly made the final. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had the national final and he again smoked it. Just phew, beat everyone. So it went on to represent India um, at the global finals in his hometown. Probably not the best, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was the, and the first kind of Indian bartender that I spent a lot of time working with. So after he won the finals, Part of the prize was I would spend six months train, six weeks training him to get him ready for the global finals. Mm-hmm. So every day I would try, or every day I was in Delhi, I would go and see him, and he knew I was coming. And he, they, the bar wouldn't allow him any extra time off oh, to go and train. Yeah. So he, he even would, though they're bringing, he yeah, was bringing so much nothing. attention to the bar. They, they don't. You know, Indian managers just don't care about that. Oh. It's just beat the staff until they, um, until they break. So. We train him every day, and he would like to have to finish his shift, and then I would come in in the morning. I would find him in the bar, and more often than not, he would just be sitting in a chair with a book in his lap, and he'd just be fast asleep. Uh-huh. So he would literally have finished his shift and started reading to learn the books I given him, and read until he fell asleep. And then I would wake him up, and then be like, okay, Tim, now we practice. Um, the work ethic. Yeah, incredible. it was incredible. Uh-huh. Yeah, or his work work ethic in particular. He's a very special, uh-huh. a very special man. Now, you personally, how were you feeling at this time? Did you have any more attacks? Did you? No, no. I was just so excited to be there in, mm-hmm. um, in India mm-hmm. at that time. Did it, you it, ever think back to when that had happened? No, no. no. Um, by the end time. of my time in India, uh-huh. it started to um, started to get to me again, and I had a few a few issues. Um, but after we, we we took him out to the the global finals, and now he works in India's so in New York's number one Indian restaurant. So his dream was always to go overseas um, and be a, a bartender. Now he's like the celebrated Indian bartender working at Janoon um, in New York, and is like very much a an integral part of the New York bar scene. Mm-hmm. So it's just like super super duper proud of him. Um. And then the next year we did the same, and we had a young guy called Devender Segal. Um, very similar story, but we took him to Rio to represent India there. Um, he now is the bar manager at Eight and a Half Otto de Mezzo in Hong Kong. And it's the only three Michelin star Italian restaurant outside of Italy. Um, but he is a Bacardi Legacy finalist. He won the Global Hanau gin competition and it's just one of the best bartenders mm-hmm. I've ever come across and so to see those two young guys come out of, of the kind of small daddy bar scene and go on and in, uh, do incredible things around the world and become like you know really great international bartenders is one of the proudest moments of my career and I'm sure they influence so many Indian oh definitely now. No, no, they yeah. both go back and do uh-huh. trainings there and they are like icons to I'm the sure. local bar scene uh-huh. Um, it's funny, I went back to India a few years ago to um, judge world class and the round in Delhi just blew my socks off. Because like, when I left, it was really just very bad. There lots and lots of passion, but not a lot of skill. And then I went back to judge the, the world class finals in Delhi and it was the complete opposite. Like 
so skillful bartenders all using local ingredients homemade bitters homemade you know and it was just mind-blowing i think you know like thailand maybe the india just has i mean every part of india is a different yeah. has a different cuisine oh, definitely, so they yeah. you know you get 10 bartenders from mm-hmm. india they're just there's no way they're doing the same thing no exactly they all have different locally sourced things and God, it must be incredible. I would love was, to be a judge in India. Yeah, it was it was just mind blowing. So many fruits uh-huh. that you've never yeah. seen, and and they and all it's hard to compete with them. With uh, that, definitely, and you know, once they especially the smaller countries, yeah, they don't have as much. I think definitely once the Indian bar scene starts rolling, and uh-huh. they have problems with they get over the problems with their um, you know, import duties and their bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff, it's just gonna they're gonna smash it because you know, Indian food is so well known and so well loved and the flavors are so iconic um, and they have so much. Um, but yeah, by by the time my kind of three years in India was up, I was starting to kind of really spiral down Can't again. You did all of that in just three years. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a lot. No wonder a lot yeah. going on. Um, it was an amazing time. Uh-huh. Um, but India takes a lot from you gives you a lot but it also takes a lot it's an incredibly hectic noisy place like people complain that london is noisy it's nothing compared to mumbai no i went to a wedding six kilometers away it took us three and a half hours to get there from just within mumbai Mm -hmm. yeah the traffic is just you've never seen if you've never been to india you've never seen anything like it it's um you know and the the pollution and the noise and the smells and the, the overcrowding and just the the things that you're faced with on a daily basis don't you just like walking to the shops you'll walk past rotting animals and and smells that make you want to gag you might walk past a dead person just lying in the street rats everywhere uh-huh. um, but at, at the same time you have those wonderful smells of incense the best food in the world you know super humble lovely people um, so it, it gives you a lot but it also takes a lot and by the end it was just it was taking too much um and so did your next um didn't did your your next uh step also pop up in your inbox yeah no literally um i (laughs) yeah i um i sent an email to the the global commercial head of reserve um, saying, look, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to quit my job in India, blah, blah, blah. He was like, give me give me five minutes. So he called me up five minutes later and said, right, there's this, I'm going to create a job in Africa. Um, we want to have a you know uh, an ambassador in Africa. So I said, okay, great. So, so I want you to apply for it. I'm not going to give it to you. You've got to go through the whole appro- uh, you know, applying process, but um, I want you to apply. So I applied for that. Did you ever think, though, I need to go back to Cornwall for some peace and to hear I, the waves. I, or you still wanted to just keep going? Yeah, I still wanted to keep going. And and at the time, the I'd always lived by the ocean. So Cornwall, very close to the beach. Auckland is surrounded by the ocean. Oh. Mumbai, you could see the ocean from my um, from my window. Although so I would never, never want to swim in that ocean. <laughs> um, and I was originally told that the, the Africa job would be based in Cape Town. So I was like, oh my God, Cape Town. Right. By the beach again, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Amazing. You said originally. So I yeah. It's not to come. No. <laughs> Those hopes were dashed on the rocks. So you made it through the application process. Yep. So made the application process, got the job, um, and then found out it was based in London. We're stopping here midway through Tim's journey until next week. 
Already his career has had incredible twists and turns, and more is yet to come. If you're a bar owner and one of your staff is having trouble, please seek help at healthyhospo.com. We've been talking so much about India that I asked him to give us a cocktail of the week with some Indian flair. So now it's that time. Our cocktail of the week is the Chill Your Chai, which Tim created for art restaurant in Mumbai. It's great for a party, so I'm giving you the recipe to serve your whole summer dew. You'll need one liter of vodka and one liter of water, 20 G's of golden tip Assam tea, and 1.5 G's of masala chai. Brew the one liter of water with the teas for about 10 minutes. Add the vodka and leave it to cool. Next, you'll need 300 milliliters of full cream milk. Heat the milk in a pan until it's close to boiling. Remove it from the heat and add to your masala chai vodka mix. Then allow that to stand for 30 minutes. Add 8 grams of 15% citric acid and gently stir to begin the curdling process. Leave that to stand and gently stir it every 10 minutes for one hour. Then leave it overnight. The next day, strain the mix through a muslin cloth and two coffee filters. Do not try and push the mix through the filters as you will ruin the entire process. Then finally, pour 150 mils of what you just made over ice and strain into a chilled glass. Then garnish with a local flour. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week on alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Next week, we find Tim with one foot in London and one foot in Africa. Non-stop travel, no rest, bad food and drink choices, all led to what were life-changing events for Tim. Come back then to hear the rest of his story. Again, if you're in the industry and see someone who needs help, please go to healthyhospo.com. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of a Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.